I'll ask you, if you have your Bible still in hand, to simply turn a page, or two at the most, to Paul's letter to Titus. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy and one to Titus. They are typically called the pastoral epistles, and they are excellent sources for material when one is at an ordination service or an installation service of a minister. And I'd like to direct your attention this evening to Titus chapter 1, as our text will be verses 5 through 9. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this evening that you would open up your word to us. That we would see your will, your design for your church. That we would be encouraged by your gifts to the church in elders. And so we ask this evening that you would lift our eyes toward the Savior, that we would see in Him our all in all, and that even as leaders and followers of Jesus, that we would seek to do His will and to keep the stewardship that He has given to us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This passage before us this evening is about the importance of leadership. As a matter of fact, this whole evening is about the importance of leadership. There's a little bit of pomp and circumstances. We have a commission from the presbytery here. There will be questions and answers. There will be uh, charges to the minister and to the session. In one sense, all very formal. But all of this formality reveals the substance that Jesus has provided leaders for His church. And so it is the responsibility both of the congregation to choose those leaders and of the leaders to lead as Jesus directs. That's what Paul tells Titus here in this first chapter. This is one of the famous chapters in the Bible that deals with the qualifications of 
elders. There is a very similar passage in Paul's first letter to Timothy, describing what an elder must look like. You see, it is not up to us to decide who should lead, what things are important, what qualities we want in a person. No, God has put down in His eternal Word the qualifications of those whom Jesus has called to this work. And it's not as if men need to strive to reach these qualifications. We must remember that Jesus calls men to leadership in the church, to the eldership. And so we look to find these qualities knowing that if Jesus has called a man, these qualities will be evident. The first thing that I want us to see from this passage is in verse 5. And that is that leaders are involved in developing the church and bringing the church to maturity and fruition. Elders are the leaders of the church. And we see this if we think about the context in which Paul is writing. Paul is writing to a very young church. It has just been recently founded. Paul and Titus have gone and done the work of evangelists. They have brought the gospel and people have come to saving faith and they're gathering together to worship and they don't know what they should be doing. They don't know what direction they are to take the church, what emphasis the church should make. Paul does. And so Paul tells Titus that he needs to find leaders who will develop the church who will fight the tendency, especially among new converts, toward immorality. Who will help the church when it comes under attack from the authorities, from heretics, from those who are scoffers. Because you see, the church has a purpose in the world. So Paul starts with this purpose. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Because the church is a display of God's work in the world. Do you want to know what God is doing in the world today? Look to the church. The church needs to be about the work of God. Spreading the gospel. Making disciples. Doing works of mercy. God is at work in the world today through the church. Now that doesn't mean that that's exclusive, that there's no work of the Lord going on outside the church. But that's where the main work of the Lord is found. The church is to be out in the neighborhoods, in the cities, in the world, bringing the gospel. You know, just because you can walk into a gas station and buy something to eat, doesn't make it a grocery store. If you want to find food, the first place you look is a grocery store. And so if you want to find the Lord at work, the first place you should look is the church. And so Paul tells Titus that he has an important task before him. Titus has been purposefully left behind. The Greek here is very vivid. It's not just that Paul forgot to take Titus on the ship. And oh, since you happen to be there. No, the Greek actually means that Paul has intentionally purposefully left Titus behind to build up this church. And Titus can't do it alone. Now you and I may know that just from common sense. It's harder to do almost anything by yourself. When you have someone to come alongside you, to encourage you, to work with you, the task becomes easier. It even becomes enjoyable. 
I've even been known occasionally to moderately enjoy some form of fix-it things when Daryl's by my side. <laughs> Don't ask me to ever do it by myself. But you see, Paul knew Titus couldn't do it alone, and so he tells him, you need to build up the church, appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. The way the church is developed and built up is first and foremost through discipleship. The church is the place for discipling. The Great Commission was given to the church. Go and make disciples. And the elders of the church are to lead in that because making disciples requires care. Jesus Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, gave elders for precisely that purpose, for the building up of the church, for involving the saints in the ministry, for bringing the gospel to a lost world. And so Paul tells Titus, you need to put what remained into order. Now, I want you to think about this this way. This, this word is a, a very, again, vivid word. In the Greek, what Paul is using is a verb that you'll recognize the root of. He says you need to ortho the church. You need to put things in order. Now, some of you have had the, I won't say pleasure, but the experience of going to an orthodontist. Others of you may have not, but have had the, again, not pleasure of paying for the orthodontist. Now, what does an orthodontist do? An orthodontist takes teeth that are crooked, and he sets them straight so that they will work as they are supposed to work. That's what Paul's telling Titus here. He says, I want you to put this church and all things into order. I want you to be able to make disciples, to bring the gospel, to do the work of an evangelist. And in order to do that, you need elders. Well, then the next question that immediately comes to us, well, Paul, who should be elders? What do elders look like? Do we just pick the first five people that volunteer? Do we pick the man who has the highest income in the congregation? Do we pick the man who has the prettiest wife or the most children? Or how do we decide who should be an elder? And so Paul gives Titus and you and me a description of what an elder looks like in verses 6 through 8. He says, if anyone is above reproach. And this is the overarching theme under which all of the specifics fall. I want you to notice that Paul wants to get your attention with this. In verse 6, he says, if anyone is above reproach. And then he concludes a list. In verse 7, he says, he must be above reproach. He repeats it. He wants to make sure we understand. The overarching characteristic of an elder is to be above reproach. Now, this does not mean that one must be perfect to be an elder. Now, how do I know that? Because if perfection was meant here, there'd be only one elder in the history of the church, and it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other man who is perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We look at the giants of the faith. Paul, a murderer and a heretic. David, an adulterer and a murderer. Moses, a murderer and a liar. Abraham, a liar. All the great men of Scripture 
have one thing in common with you and me. They're sinners. So what this means is not perfection, but rather it means one against whom an accusation cannot be made. An elder cannot be a man that someone looks at and says, yeah, he's a liar. He lies to me all the time. He's a cheat. Don't ever do business with him. Oh, he's angry all the time. An elder has to be above reproach. He has to have a level of character in which he is known in the main, not perfectly, but in the main, as a man who follows the Lord Jesus. We might think of a synonym that's used by Paul in another place. An elder must be blameless. No blame can be assigned to him. But then Paul begins to drill down a bit. He says, underneath that broad category of above reproach, there must be characteristics found of an elder in his family. And, and this is, I think, important because true character comes out in the home. I hate to tell you, but virtually all of us can put on a good act for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. But you can't put on an act 24 hours a day, seven days a week in your home. And so Paul says, what are you like in your home, in your family, with your wife and with your children? And this matter of the family also shows us the importance of relationships because elders are to be people who build relationships with people in the church, not those who are simply dispensers of information. And so the very first place that Paul starts is that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. Now, one would think you would not even have to comment that an elder should be a man. Because a woman can't be a husband of one wife. But in today's day and age, you do need to comment about that. And that's exactly what Paul means. The word here for husband is the word for a man, a masculine man. And the word here for wife is the word for a woman, a feminine wife. Now, I want you to see two things here. Not just that an elder must be a man, but I want you to see that the very first particular item here is the relationship of a man to his wife. And so don't think an elder is a man who lords it over his house and tells his wife what to do and orders her around and never listens to her advice and never seeks her counsel in anything because Paul says one of the main tests of an elder is how does he treat his wife? Is she a part of his life? Does he treat her as his other half? The one who completes him? The one whom he trusts more than anyone else in the world? That's the relationship that a man is to have to his wife. Now, I don't think what this text is saying here is that no man who is single can be an elder. And I think I'm on pretty good ground here because Paul was single. And so if Paul was saying you had to be married to be an elder, then guess what? Paul couldn't be an elder, and Paul was. And then, of course, there's a matter of another man who is single, and I think is qualified to be an elder, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't want to make the text say more than it says. It doesn't eliminate single men. It doesn't eliminate widowers. If a man's wife dies, he's immediately disqualified from the ministry. It doesn't eliminate those who are biblically divorced, who have been abandoned by their wife, or who have had their wife commit adultery on them. 
who are the innocent party in a divorce. But what it means is a man must be faithful in his marriage. He must be literally a one-woman man. He must be known as a man who is committed to one woman. Now, this is the positive side of this as well. The elder has to be committed to his wife, and he has to be committed to modesty. He has to be committed to faithfulness to her. The next thing that we see about the home is that his children are to be believers, the ESV says. Some translations say faithful, and not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now again, I think we don't want to make the text go further than it does. We don't want to say that every man to be an elder must have every one of his children who have made a profession of faith. Because then again, we would disqualify every man after he has a child. Because if you, like me, have ever been around the birth of a child, you know that children, when they come forth from the womb into this world, do not come forth talking. They come forth screaming and crying. And they don't put together sentences. And they can't read the Bible. And so... We have to wait and disciple children to bring them to an age in which they can profess that the Lord Jesus is their Savior. And we have to also understand that God is in control of salvation. If we were to take this text to say that every child of an elder to be qualified must be a believer, wouldn't we be saying something like that man is responsible for their salvation? That somehow he needs to teach them well enough or pray for them hard enough so that they'll be saved? And the problem with that is it flies in the face of all of the Bible that says that salvation is of the Lord. And so what I think this is better to be taken as, it's the same Greek word, is not believers in the sense of those who have professed faith, but faithful children. And this goes along with the rest of the sentence. They are not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. So a man must not only have a relationship with his wife and other women, but with children. And so you can look at a man and see how he acts. Is he involved in vacation Bible school? Does he like to be involved with children in Sunday school and in the congregation? And so for a minister of the gospel, I have to tell you that relating to children, you must use the holy high five or fist bump. You must let children know that they are valued in the congregation. That's what Paul is talking about here. A man who is an elder relates to the entirety of the congregation. And there's no charge that can be laid at his family. He rules his house well. But again, that doesn't mean that in every instance, everyone in his family is perfectly well-behaved. There are certainly instances of prodigal children who go and come back. There are instances of rebellion of children who are not under their parents' authority. You all know that there comes a point in time when you simply cannot make your children do things. I often tell young parents that as they struggle with young kids and they squirm around and they pick them up and they move them and it's exhausting and I say, listen, this is the easy part. If you want your child to sit there, you pick them up and you move them and you sit them there. You can't do that with a teenager. You can't do that with an 18-year-old. And so there's a, a level of authority here that is involved. 
But there also needs to be some character in himself. There needs to be a self-mastery. Paul tells us that he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. This is the negative side of the equation. A man must master his own passions. He must not be known for sin. When you look at that man, you should not find a model for arrogance or quick-temperedness or violence or being greedy. But like everything in following Jesus, it's not enough to simply avoid sin. There is a positive aspect to this as well that Paul picks up in verse 8. An elder must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He needs to be hospitable to others. He needs to dwell on what is good and point others to what is good. He needs to be self-controlled and prudent, thoughtful. He shouldn't be causing difficulties and problems. He shouldn't be always complaining. He shouldn't be always finding the worst things in the world. He's to be devout and pious. And I think that last word sums all of this up, disciplined. He is to be a man who is under the authority of the word of God and serving God. Well, the third thing that Paul shows us in this text is that an elder is not just to be one who builds up the church, not just to be one who exemplifies character, but he is one who brings true doctrine to the flock. We see this in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. A man who is to be an elder is to be known for his knowledge. He has a zeal and eagerness for the truth. He is eager to obtain it. He must hold firm, Paul says. This means to cling to the truth, to be devoted to the truth. You might have this image in your mind. He is to cling to the word of God the way a small child clings to something that they want to keep. Have you ever had that experience as a parent? You say, hand that over to me. No. No, really, hand that over to me. No. And what you have to do as a parent, you have to take their hand and pry their fingers off one by one to get at it. They're clinging. And if you just pry off three of the five fingers, you're not going to get it. They're going to hold on to it with all their might. That's the way that a man of God clings to the truth of God. Never gives up on it. Holds it fast. And he has this zeal for the word of God because he knows that the word of God is trustworthy. That's what Paul says. He holds firm to the trustworthy word. It's not just a word that we have. It is trustworthy. We stake our lives upon it. Isn't that true, Christian? Do you live your life following the Lord Jesus Christ, staking everything you have? on the fact that God's word is true. Because if God's word were false, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection were not true, if the story of Jesus Christ were not true, then we are the most miserable of people. We should be whooping it up, doing whatever we want. 
But we live our lives in accordance with the truth of God's word. And the elder needs to lead in that. To show that the word is trustworthy. And that he bases his own life upon it. And he needs to also understand the word. There is a link here to the doctrine that goes all the way back to the apostles. The elder is not to bring novel interpretation of God's truth. I've often said to young men, if you have a doctrine that no one else has thought of in the two millennia of the church, I can virtually guarantee that you are wrong and are a heretic. Because the Holy Spirit did not leave his church in darkness for two millennia. We don't want to come up with new things. May it never be said of me or of anyone who is in this pulpit that we teach new and interesting things. No. We teach the faith that is delivered once and for all to the saints. But it's not enough for the elder to simply have knowledge. He has to apply that knowledge to himself and others. It's what you do with the knowledge that matters. And that's what Paul says here in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, the result is, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. There is a purpose here, and it's a both and. He needs to be able to convey truth in a positive way. He needs to give instruction to the flock. He needs to exhort them. And this is more than teaching. This is encouraging. This is pushing on. This is pointing people to God's word to give them hope when it's wavering. And he also needs to do this for our health. Paul talks about sound doctrine. And actually the work here, the word here could be translated healthy. It's a word that we get our word hygiene from. So the word that comes from the elder, the teaching that comes from the elder, must have good hygiene. It must not spread disease. It must be wholesome. It must build up and be active. So Paul says they are to convey truth, but they're also to contradict error because Satan is constantly roaming about trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And the place where Satan always wants to begin is with the leaders of the church. Because Satan knows if he could take down the pastor, he could take down a church. Far more often than I would wish in my experience, I have seen or heard tales of a minister who fails morally or doctrinally and the church just dissipates. And worse than that, it's not as if the church merely scatters and all of the surrounding churches add members. Often, the members of that church never go to church again. They reject their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They'll say something like, if that's what believing in Jesus is like, I want none of it. This is a weighty task for the elder. He needs to defend the truth against error. And the goal here is to protect the flock and to win over those who are in error. Well, it is always important, 
but I think especially this evening, to know what elders look like. When we see these traits in a man, we can see that Jesus has called him to lead in Christ's church. Perfection is not required, but a real desire and ability to fulfill the task that has been committed to the man by Jesus. In his work, the pastor does not rely on his own strength, but the power of the Spirit and the calling of God. Praise be to the Lord for giving us elders. Let's pray.